All right, if you don't have it out already, grab God's Word. Open it up to Daniel chapter 1. We will be in verses 3 through 7 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a paperback one right there in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. No better gift than God's Word, amen? All right. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and because we are thankful that God has given his word to us, you will respond with, thanks be to God. When you get to Daniel chapter 1, verse 3, say, he's the center of it all. All right. Follow along with me. Have your eyes on scripture beginning in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're glad that you're here. And as you can tell from the epic intro, we are um, in the book of Daniel. And so last week we took a break and had uh, Brother Randy Garris here from Ozark Christian College. And man, if you weren't here for that, he just spoke um, on the purpose of marriage as an overflow from our marriage retreat and would love to direct you to the website. And uh, he was just a great blessing, man. He was like Yoda. He was just filled with wisdom and knowledge. You know what I mean? And so it was an awesome time. And so we're jumping back into the book of Daniel. And if it's your first time here, we've got all of our messages on the website, and so you probably need to check in on that first one. We covered a lot. We preached an entire sermon on two verses, and so understood the context of all of that. And and listen, here's the reason why we're studying the book of Daniel. Um, A lot of people are like, Old Testament book, book of Daniel, that's about visions and all kinds of crazy stuff. Why that? Well, we learned that Daniel and the people of Israel were taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar And now they're living in a different land, a different culture, literally a different everything. And they have to try to live for God and stand for God in a culture that hates God. Sound familiar, anyone, right? It's sort of like us following Christ in 2018. How do we live for Jesus, stand for Jesus, live on the truth of God's word in a culture and in a society that, quite frankly, hates it? And so we've learned an applicable life lesson every week as to how we can leave this place and do this because you know that this isn't what it's all about, right? It's about when we leave this place, amen? Oh, that was a good spot for an amen. The 9 a.m. is a little better than you. I'm going to give it another go, okay? Because it's not about this. It's about when we leave this place, amen? Amen. And so we're learning truths that we can apply to our life. And so last week, we learned how do we stand in a culture that's fallen, We can only stand in a culture that's fallen by standing on the truth that God is sovereign. That no matter what's taking place, no matter the chaos, no matter the suffering, no matter the heartbreak, no matter any of that, underneath all of that, God is still in control. And that he is doing things that we can't see. And so we stand on that truth first. And then now this week we're going to learn something that I believe will will change your life. 
But maybe as an introduction, this will be helpful. Just really quickly, you got this hello, my name is thing, right, in your bulletin? Hang on to that, okay? Hang on to that. Don't, don't draw stick figures or make airplanes with that, all right? Hang on to that. We're going to use that at the end of the sermon. But maybe as a way of an introduction into this, take a look at this. This is a picture of a really, really old book, a book about the 6th century. The book's actually made out of bamboo, um, and it's written by this man, Sun Tzu, Sun Tzu. And the title of that book, you may have heard of it before, is called The Art of War. The Art of War. And so it was written by Sun. He was a general in the Chinese army. And actually, people say that it is probably one of the best books ever written on warfare and on strategy and on things like that. Even people like Robert E. Lee have been quoted as of quoting and learning from that book. And it's a warfare book back when China basically ruled the known world and had one of the most sophisticated armies um, ever. And it sort of got quaint sayings and proverbs in it. But one of the things that Sun um, really narrows down on when it comes to warfare and it comes to strategy and everything like that is, is understanding your enemy. And there's a section in it where he says this, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But if you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer defeat. And if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every single battle. Pretty cool. Basically what he's saying is when you go into warfare, you got to know yourself and you got to know your enemy. You got to know who your enemy is, how your enemy works, and all of you competitive people in the room, right, right now, you guys know this, right? Even when it comes down to monopoly, man, you're just like, my mother-in-law is not going to win, bro, (laughs) right? And so we know what to do in light of this. Now, there's something that you have to understand. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to understand that you are also engaged in warfare, that there is opposition and that you do have an enemy, okay? Now listen, I understand if you're not a Christian or maybe you're peeking over the fence, at, uh, the fence at Christianity trying to figure this thing out and all that type of stuff, that sounds weird, and yes, it does. The idea of an enemy and Satan and things like that, I understand that. That does sound strange. But I would just ask you, what other solution do you have and what other worldview do you have as to what's going on? There is opposition in your life. Being a Christian, being a Christian married couple, being a Christian single person, there is opposition in your life. And kind of what we learned about a couple of weeks ago, there is opposition constantly for you to take off the jersey that represents Jesus and put on the jersey of the world. And actually the New Testament speaks all about this. And the Apostle Paul would say it this way in Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now here it is. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is something going on. It is not just your husband and it's not just your wife. It's not just your co-worker. It's not just the addiction. It's not just mass shootings. It's not just all of that. There is a war going on that we cannot see. And it's not just flesh and blood, but it is a spiritual war. 
And you've got to understand that if you are a follower of Christ, you have a bullseye on your back. And what we see in this chapter is that Daniel and them are taken captive. And now they're in the king's palace. And something you've got to understand is Babylon represents literally sort of like the enemy, the world, right? Now, yes, God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yes, God loves his creation. But listen, God also hates that his creation has rebelled against him. And he hates the way that the world works. He's constantly saying, don't love the world in the way that they define things and do all of that. So listen, if we have an enemy, how do we know what he's doing? In that verse, it says the schemes of the devil, which literally almost translates like temptation, traps, or strategy. Well, here's how you got to understand. This is what the enemy is after, and it's this. The strategy of the enemy is to distort your identity. That's what he's coming after. He's coming after the core of who you are. He wants you to believe lies. He wants to attack your being and to who you are because he knows this. Listen, if he can get your identity and if he can define you from that moment, then he's got you. So what do we do? How do we know? I mean, look at the progression in the text, right? It literally goes from in the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, king of Babylon, besieged it. And then literally in verse 7, we have these guys getting new names. Like, man, that happens pretty quick, right? Warfare, it happens, boom, you get new names. So what's the progression? What does this look like? How is he going to attack my identity? How am I going to believe lies? And listen, for some of you today, I believe the light bulb is going to come on. I believe some of you are going to realize, man, it's not this, it's not that. What's really going on is I'm being attacked And it's fundamentally at the core of who I am. So how does this happen? Well, the first thing is this. It starts with isolation. It starts with isolation. It starts with isolation. Look in verse 3. The king commanded his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. And then here's verse 4. Are you looking at your Bible? Verse 4, right? This is the qualifications. This is how tall you got to be to ride this ride. Use without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom and endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. And then the end of verse 5. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So here's what's going on. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, snatches people up out of Babylon, or I'm sorry, snatches them up out of Israel, takes them back to Babylon, and then he's like any good king, I need the best of the best, I need the cream of the crop, and I need them on my team. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to separate them from everybody else. I'm going to take the ones that I'm going to teach and learn and mold and shape and submerge them into Babylonian culture. But what I first need to do is I need to take them away from everybody else and I need to get them alone. And I need to get them alone for three years. I'm going to get them alone. Maybe this will be helpful. Obviously, through our branding and graphics and everything, we got a lot of lions, right, for for this series. Daniel and the lion's den, one of the famous, you know, uh, portions of scripture there. But as studying, kind of preparing before that, it's pretty cool, really, when you understand lions and actually how they attack their prey and do all of this stuff. 
I was looking on National Geographic, and it says this about how lions attack their prey. The male lions will stand away if they found a herd. The male lions will stand away and let out a really loud roar. There's only two times a lion yells when it's either attacking its prey or when it's conquered its prey. And so it will yell, causing panic in the herd, and then the other lions will rush in, but they're waiting on something. And here's what National Geographic says. Their attacks and roars cause prey to panic and disperse, allowing the lions to isolate and attack a weaker or slower individual. By hunting together, lions are able to exhaust and kill their prey. So when they roar and they rush and they see the herd, they're waiting for something. You know what they're waiting for? For someone to break away from the herd. Because as soon as they break away from the herd, all the other lions isolate that person and attack that individual. Because they know they can't attack an entire herd, but they can attack the one that breaks away from the herd. Here's what I'm saying to you. Isolation always leads to destruction. And when it comes to the community of faith, I can set my watch and set my calendar as I watch people not come to the gathering, right? Busy, busy. Kids no longer at kids' side or at youth anymore. Busy, busy. Ah, I can't make the marriage thing. Community group, ah, busy, busy, busy. And I can set my calendar and set my watch until the phone call happens and they say, oh, I need to have a meeting with you. Oh, everything is just going on. And oh, I just don't know what's happening now. And oh, everything, I'm just under such attack. Yeah, yeah. Because when you isolate yourself away from the rest of the body, you know, it's funny that Second Peter says that we have an enemy who is like a roaring lion roaming around, seeking whom to devour. Now, here's what's difficult about that. The bigger we get as a church, the easier it's going to be to be isolated, right? So the idea of coming in and not knowing anyone is actually going to take something on your part. I know it's crazy, but this is a profound truth. Are you ready for this? Relationships go both ways, okay? Just let that, oh, let that sink in, Okay. Listen, here's the reason why we have marriage retreats. Here's the reason why we do dinners and lunches. Here's the reason why we want you to serve. So you can know people. So you can know people. And the idea of being isolated away from it and not being around the gathering and not being around each other. Now I'm isolated. And now I'm alone. And now I'm starting to believe lies. And now nobody cares about me. And now nobody loves me. And the enemy is constantly pushing you away. But do you know what else I've read in the article? This is great. Right? It had this picture. Look at this picture. Here's what lions don't know what to do. When no one disperses from the herd and the herd attacks the lions. Right? The lions run the opposite way. They're like, there's like 200 water buffalo coming at me right now. I have no idea what to do. Because this truth, community always leads to victory. Always. God has not made the Christian life in such a way that you can live it alone. No, you cannot. We need each other. So listen, you're going to have to reach out. Community's difficult. Make yourself known. Try at this thing. Because the enemy is constantly going to try to isolate you away from everyone. And I've seen it time and time again. One of the things that John G. and a lot of the guys tell me about guys who come out of the ministry of John 3.16 is 
They can mark their calendar and know when a guy is going to fall because all of a sudden he's not a Bible study anymore. And he moved here. He didn't make this meeting. And he's a little bit more infrequent. And they're just waiting on the phone call until so-and-so is in the hospital or until this happened again. Because once we're isolated and we get alone, we are not powerful enough. But it continues with something else, and it's this. It continues by indoctrination. So it starts with isolation. I need to get you away from everybody else where you're weaker, where you're alone. And then I need to teach you some things. And look, this comes from verse 4. The use without blemish, and then to stand in the king's palace, and then here it is. And to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So here's what's happening. They've got them alone. They're away from everybody else for three years. And now they're learning all about Babylonian culture. And so we know what this would have been like. Here's a picture of an ancient stone that has some of the language of Babylon written on it. An etymologist, the history of words and languages and things. Um, it's one of the most difficult languages to understand and decipher because they were so technologically advanced. Their sentences have symbols and letters, and it's very difficult. But language creates culture, right? So if you've ever been out of the country and been somewhere else, you kind of sort of feel out of place because you don't know what's going on because you don't know the language. And, you know, if, we, if you came to my house or if I came to your house, things would be ran differently because the culture and things are different. And you know what scholars say? They would have been learning, like, a new creation story. That it wasn't God that spoke things into existence, but it was deities that were mad at each other and they were fighting. And, and they would be learning a new redemptive story about how humanity is saved and what humanity needs day in, day out, through the language and through the literature. And listen, this is happening to you and I every day. Now, this isn't, some of you may have grown up in like a super hardcore fundamentalist background and like what they were playing, Daniel, was rock music and ACDC. That's how they were indoctrinated. That's not what's going on, okay? But you and I are being indoctrinated every day of our life. You don't think so. Just watch TV with a little kid, Right? A commercial comes on, and there's this new Lego thing or this new princess thing and this like that. And you know what Andy Gray says at our house? I want that. I want that. Why? She's being indoctrinated. What you need, Andy Grace, is this princess set, and this will make you happy, right? I mean, what do you think Matthew McConaughey is doing? I, don't, I still don't know what he's rolling around in his fingers on those commercials, but he's trying to sell you a car, right? And listen, we're no different as adults, but I think that it really boils down to three lies that, that we're being indoctrinated with constantly, that we're constantly battling. And the first lie is this, you can't trust God. You're being taught that every day of your life. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do it on your own, you don't need God. You can't trust him. Everybody else in your life has failed you and turned their back on you. And what you need to do is you need to be a loner and you need to, be a, you need to do it on your own and you don't need to give your life. All that is fooey, fairy tale. You can't trust him. And man, that sounds really familiar like that one story in the Bible where Adam and Eve and the enemy comes and says, did God really say? And you're being indoctrinated constantly because then if you can't trust God, well, pfft, you definitely can't trust his word because just a bunch of white men wrote the Bible and you can Google some stuff in Wikipedia and find out that that's not true because the earth is flat and all that. Like, people really believe this. It blows my mind. It's like crazy, right? Because you can't trust God. 
You can't trust God. The second one is this. Um, Jesus isn't enough. Jesus isn't enough. Man, if people only knew what you did. If people at your church knew what you really thought, knew what you did, man, they would look at you differently. Uh-uh, and there's no way what Jesus did on the cross is enough for you. Maybe enough for somebody else, but it's definitely not enough for you. And so then what we start doing, and all of these bleed themselves actually into the church, right? So Jesus isn't enough. So we have false teachings that pop up and say it's got to be Jesus plus something, right? Like Jesus and my obedience. And the more I obey, the more God loves me. The more I read my Bible, my little Jesus calling devotional, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And you know, the more times I post the YouVersion Daily Bible app on my Facebook and all this stuff, God will love me more because of that. That's called works-based righteousness, and that's false. Read your Bible. Do all of that stuff. But do it because God already loves you, not so he will love you. There's a profound difference in that. So it's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Jesus plus blank. Listen, here's the greatest math problem ever. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's it. That's all we have. And the lie that we're constantly being indoctrinated with is Jesus isn't enough. But the most profound that I think that we struggle with in Western culture is this. I'm the exception. I'm the exception. Now, now Bill, Bill's got some problems. Bill is not the exception, okay? Bill's got to get some stuff figured out in his life. And Bill, you know, he had a problem with his secretary, and they couldn't go out to lunch together. But, I mean, I'm different than Bill. I mean, I can get this stuff. So me and this girl, we go and work out together, and I'm not, I can handle it on my own because, listen, here, newsflash, right? I'm going to put the jelly on the bottom shelf. Everybody in this room is two steps away from stupid, Okay? Every single person, all right? And what we need is people in our life that's letting us know when our butter's sliding off our biscuit, all right? You are not the exception. No one is the exception. And we're even raising our kids that way. What you need is another cupcake and another star next to your name because you're so special that your teacher is wrong. No, what your kid needs is a spanking and a hug, all right? More spankings and more hugs, man. Nobody's the exception. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't give a rip what your last name is. I don't care what business your daddy started. And I don't care how Butler County operates. You are not the exception. And I read this morning in my Bible reading plan, Proverbs 16, pride comes before the fall. And the moment you think you've got it under control... And the moment you think that the pornography is not killing your family or going to swallow you whole, or the secret addiction will remain a secret, or the text messages, or this or that, you are already done. Because I can guarantee you, you've been isolated, and you've been on your own, and you've been indoctrinated with all of these lies that we're battling But that's not it. It's got to continue with something. Because if you're leading people, you've got to appeal to something in them, right? So it's this. It it is driven by indulgence. It is driven by indulgence. Look at what happens here in verse 5. 
The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So, so here's what's going on. You've got to understand, this is ancient. This is ancient times. There's no hot pockets and no drive through okay? There's no, like, refrigerator. So what the king ate was the best of the best. It was the freshest meat. It was the freshest fruit. It was all of those things. So here's what he's doing to them. He's isolating them away from everyone else. He's teaching them about a new worldview, how you should view the world and view yourself. But he's also appealing to their flesh. Because they're over there eating steaks, popping grapes in their mouth, and they're like, hey, yo, this captivity thing, it ain't so bad, bro. Right? It ain't so bad. This is great. And he's indulging them in what they desire. Do you know where we get our word indulgence from? You know what the word indulge means? It comes from a Latin phrase that means to freely give yourself over to something. And you will only freely give yourself over to something until you desire it. It appeals to you, right? Maybe this will help. Um, In the summertime, you can walk into our kitchen and you'll see something like this sitting on one of the counters that my wife puts out. And your house is probably the same, right? So we keep a lot of fresh fruit out with the kids. And so we'll have a glass with some apple cider vinegar in it or something like that to, to catch flies, to catch gnats and stuff like that. But you know why you set that out? The apple cider vinegar is so sweet and it drives them crazy that they either fly right into it and get trapped and they can't escape, or if you put the foil over it, they fly in and stay for so long that they literally die. And that's the same thing with you and I and our sin. Listen, I can follow any cult leadership. When it starts saying, you don't need repentance, you don't need to deny yourself, you can do this, you can sleep with whoever you want, you can define with whatever you want, and indulge in what you want. And little do we know that we are like the fly caught in the fly trap. That we've indulged ourselves into this. Because listen, the enemy is not going to come to you in your life and just rock you right, right in front of your face. He's going to appeal to something to you. It's going to be desirable. It's going to be comfortable. And did you know what the Bible actually says about sin? The Bible actually says that sin is pleasurable. Like, it doesn't deny that fact, okay? It doesn't deny that. In Hebrews, it talks about Moses' life, and it says this, "...choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season." The Bible acknowledges that the enemy is going to appeal to something pleasurable to you. But it's for a season. It's for a season. And it has a time limit on it. And here's what's so fascinating with our society and being Christians in 2018. Our society says that you don't need any restraints. You don't need any rules to define you. You don't need to live by anyone's standards. Do what's right for you and what feels good in your little old heart. And what's right for you is what's right for you. And what's right for me is right for me. And we don't need any restrictions. And we don't need any restraint. And we don't need any laws or any guidelines that are going to do that. And what's so funny is our society is constantly never satisfied. But they're like less restraint, but we're still not satisfied because this, listen, freedom is not found in the absence of restrictions. True freedom is found in submission. So it's not the idea that truth is subjective, right? What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because what if I say your truth is wrong and my truth is right? What standard do we guide by that? 
And people who always say, I don't believe in absolute truth, and then I ask them, do you absolutely believe that? And they say yes, and I go, well, that's an absolute statement, right? So you see the idea, we're all submitting to something in our life. The question is, what are you submitting yourself to? The book of Romans would say, whatever you give yourself over to, you are a slave to. And listen, if you are not submitting yourself to God, then you are submitting yourself to yourself and you are your own God. And listen, please look up here. You make a horrible God. You make a horrible God. Because you're always going to disappoint yourself. You can never follow through. And you're constantly lying to yourself. No one lies to you more than you lie to yourself. But when you're isolated and you're getting indoctrinated and then you're indulging in everything that you want, the enemy is constantly attacking you. And then it comes to the last thing, which is this. It ends in identification. After he has isolated you, after he has indoctrinated you, After you're indulging and indulging and indulging, and now you love what you indulge, so you can't give it up because now those habits are there. Now you are marked by it. And that's where we get our names. Do you see this in verse 7? And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Do you know how big of a deal that is? Names are important, right? So I'm named Jason. I'm, I'm the youngest of four boys, but my brother Joe, before I was born, They were at a birthday party in Dallas, Texas, and they were all inside, and Joe had made his way outside and wandered and fell into the swimming pool. And nobody knew where he was until one of the family members named Jason got off duty. He was a police officer, came in through the back of the house and saw Joe at the bottom of the pool, jumped in and saved Joe. So I bear the name Jason because of that. My middle name, Graham, named after Billy Graham. My dad was saved watching a Billy Graham crusade. And, and even with our kids, it was so fun when you're having kids trying to give them names and do that. Roman was named after my favorite book of the Bible, Romans. I wanted to let him know, study your name, man. Your name is biblical. And then Andy Grace, we don't know. We just named her Andy Grace. No, I'm just teasing, right? Right? Grace, she was just such an evidence and sign of God's grace in our life, even though she's the most ungraceful person I've ever seen. She could trip standing up, you know. Piper's named after one of my famous preachers, John Piper, and then she uh, carries my middle name, Piper Graham. Here's what I'm trying to say. Names are important, right? Names identify you. And even in the Bible, it was so much more than that. You were always known by your name. You were the son of someone, and you bore that name. And we see that they have names that claim and mean something in their religion with God. Their Jewish names are very, very important. But we see that the enemy wants to change their name. And listen, when I studied these names this week and understood what the enemy was doing, I just came to a profound revelation. Well, let's just study it. The first one is this, right? Daniel. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. So Daniel means God is my judge. A solid name. Solid, strong name. God is my judge. Belteshazzar means lady protect the king. It's a feminine name. So we're not only changing the meaning of your name, we're also going to change your sexual orientation and your identity as well. So now you don't have a male name, God is my judge. You have a female name, and it means lady protect the king. There's a distortion of identity happening. The second one is this. Daniel, he called Belteshar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. So Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious to me. The personal name of God, Yahweh, has been gracious to me. 
Well, what does Shadrach mean? I'm fearful of God now. Wow. So now I go from God being gracious and loving God to now being marked either by shame or by fear because now I'm fearful of God. So now rather than God being gracious and me running to him, now I bear a name that says that I should run away from him. Azariah means Yahweh has helped me. The personal name of God. Yahweh has helped me. God has served me. Abednego means the the servant of Nebu, which is a false god of Babylon. So now I go from God serving me to now me serving a false god. Do you see the common denominator in all of the names? It takes God out of the center of their identity and places themselves at the center of their own identity. And it's either self-deprecating and fearful or it has the self right at the center of it. Because listen, the enemy understands this. If you build your life on you, he's got you. Because self-absorption always leads to self-destruction. When it's all about you, when your marriage is about you, when your kids are about you, when this church is all about you, everything is me and I'm consuming and it's me and I'm a black hole and it's me and it's me and it's me. He wants you to stay right there because now you are identified because you became isolated. You started believing lies and became indoctrinated. You started indulging in the flesh and now you are marked. So now... Your name tag. If the strategy of the enemy is to distort my identity, grab your name tag and pull it out. I thought about this this week. Hello, my name is, right? It's interesting. If you've ever been in at an event where they make you fill these out, you, already, you, you always know this is going to be awkward, right? You know what I mean? But it, it's interesting. Listen to yourself introduce yourself to someone sometime, right? Hi, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor. Or, hi, I, you know, my name is Jason. I'm married to. Or, hi, we... We tag something onto our name as to what identifies us as to who we are, like our performance or something like that. And when I thought about this, I thought, how many of you feel named by the culture and by the world? How many of you feel named by your past? And I just sat there and I just prayed and I thought, hello, my name is divorced. And now my family looks at me at shame. Hello, my name is Addicted, and now my addiction is who I am. Or how about this? I'm none of those things, and hello, my name is Self-Righteous, because I'm always the exception, and everybody else is wrong, but I'm right. Or hello, my name is Failure at everything. Hello, my name is Abused. There's no way that anybody would want me after what was done to me. Or how about this? Hello, my name is, I don't even know. I don't know. That's why any drama, any suffering, anything that happens in my life, I attach my identity to that. And you're wearing a label that the culture has smacked on your forehead. And you feel like everywhere you go, that's who you are. But listen, there's good news in this. And this is the beauty of the gospel. 
is to understand as to what takes place that, yes, we were identified in our sin. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And Psalm 51.5 said, we were born in iniquity and sin. And we were dead and we were hostile towards God, Colossians 1 says. But then the profoundness of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came, fully God, fully man, to fully represent us before God. He is the perfect God-man. And so he does everything without mistake and without failure, but yet goes and dies for the punishment that you and I deserved. And so now 2 Corinthians 5.21 is true. For if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. How? Because of verse 17. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So what we literally do in that moment, Martin Luther called it the great exchange. We take off the label. We take off the name tag that the world has placed on us and we give it to Jesus and he gives us his name tag and what his representation is before God. And did you know that this is biblical? Did you know that when we get to heaven, we're going to get a new name? Oh man, I almost came loose when I studied it this week. In Revelation, it says this in Revelation chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, persevere, fight the culture, fight the enemy, fight the war. What will happen if I do this? I will give you some of the hidden man of the bread and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So now what does the gospel do? It takes me from, hello, my name is shame, guilt, all of those things, to, hello, my name is forgiven. Forgiven. Adopted. Loved. Rewarded. Known. Free. And everything else that was Christ is now mine. Listen, you got to understand the strategy of the enemy is to distort your identity. Do you know who you are in Christ? The band's going to come and lead us in a time of response. And here's what I want you to do today. Before you come and partake at the communion table, what I want you to do is I want you to sit there and I want you to write on this name tag. Maybe some of you are so bold and so brave that you would write what you were once identified as abused, broken, addicted, divorced, all of those, and put a big X through it and then write, hello, my name is forgiven. My name is adopted. My name is redeemed. My name is found. My name is loved. Because of the grace of Jesus Christ, that's who you are. This is your new identity. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we're so grateful. We're so grateful to know your word that you haven't left us in the dark. You haven't left us as orphans and we're in a battle. And God, there's some people in this room right now today that there is war being waged in their home and over their life, over everything, over their kids, over their marriage, over their finances and at the core of who they are. And they feel like that they're walking around in shame. God, I pray for those that are close to isolation. May you bring them back, draw them into the community. May people realize, man, serving is not just for this. It's for me to get to know people. I gotta be in community group. My kids gotta be involved. We can't be alone in this. God, I pray for the people that have tried to believe these lies, that they can't trust you, Jesus, that you're not enough or that they're the exception. 
God, I pray for those of us who are so close to the edge. We've been indulging. We're playing with fire and we're close to being burned. But for all of us in this place, we are not what the world says we are. We are who we are in Christ. So hello, my name is a Christian. We are forgiven and we are loved. Thank you for that. And we pray against the enemy, his workers and their effects. And today the battle is won and we stand upon Calvary and we're identified by the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Would you stand right where you're at, right on that name tag. Put it on you. Come forward and partake in communion.